0: Hello, everyone. It's September 8th, 2020, so we got more Rocket Lab for you because Photon is now a thing. Is it a souped up kickstage, or is it something more than that? Where to draw the line? Semantics can be tricky, I guess, but we'll give it our best shot. Okay, let's do it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 275 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Uh, I've
1: got tea news if you guys want to hear that.
0: Oh, you got tea news. Okay. All right. Sounds nice.
1: So um, my favorite coffee shop, Friday afternoon tea, um, just put up pre-orders for a fuchuan tea, which is a fermented tea, which like fermented teas are like kind of special because tea is one of the few things that doesn't ferment well. And so it, it goes, it goes stale instead of fermenting and getting nicer. Um, and so this whole category of fermented teas is kind of special because it takes a lot of work to get, to get teas to age well. Um, Stai in the chat asks, isn't kombucha fermented tea? Well, kind of. Kombucha is a fermentation that you can do with tea, but it'd be just the same as making like coffee beer, where you brew a beer and add coffee. It's kind of the, kind of the same idea.
0: Uh, kombucha is you have a it's like a special bacteria and yeast colony that basically mm-hmm. ferments or you know like eats up the tea. So you right. so it's like you have to have the tea. That's not optional. No, you like,
1: can no 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 you can you can totally make kombucha in sugar water or in juice. You don't need the tea there at all.
0: Don't need the tea? No. Because I thought that, the, that it specifically ate the tea leaves. Like it's a no, special you kind you of actually, bacteria.
1: No, you actually brew the tea and then ferment the brewed tea. So this kind this kind of fermented tea is the actual leaves are aged and then you don't brew it until after the aging process has happened. And so most of the time they call it fermented, but there's not, as far as I understand, there's no... Real fermentation happening. There's some breakdown of starches happening, but it's not like, yeah, exactly. The leaves are what's being aged, mm-hmm. not the brew. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, Fuchuan is uh, a really fancy uh, type of fermented tea leaf where it's not, there, there may be a, a bacterial fermentation that's happening. Uh, or a yeast fermentation is happening, but it's actually mushrooms are doing most of the of the work. So it's, I mean, I guess biologically, it's a fungus, but it's a, you know, a single cell fungus without a a fruiting body. And so it's, you know, this totally different category in a culinary sense, but this tea actually has um, fruiting bodies growing on it, um, which is really kind of cool so anyway friday afternoon got their hands on i think 24 lots of this fucha and um i went and ordered 100 grams of it i'm really excited um for it to to come they're they're not gonna be able to fulfill orders for a couple of weeks because they they haven't received the product yet um but they you know put in their order so i'm really looking forward to mushroom tea (laughs) Should be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's your T news. I guess we should move on to some space news. <laughs> Rocket Lab. Uh, we're going to talk about them again. <laughs> um, they just uh, launched their Photon spacecraft, which we were, you know, talking about with Peter Beck last week. Right.
1: Right. And one of the things that he told us that I, I think is an important. Or at least it was something that I, I found was really interesting to bring into, uh, learning about this actual photon flying is that, you know, photon is, is sort of a concept and not a rigid product that comes off of the mm-hmm. assembly line. And so, um, it's when I asked him what the difference between photon and the kick stage is, he basically said, there is no difference. It's, it's the same, the same thing. We're just, giving a different category, uh, applying a different category when we're calling it photon. So um, this is called the, the first flight of photon, but in reality, it's just... Uh, a kick stage with, you know, photon, the word silk screened onto the outside. So a different paint job. Um, and indeed, um, back in an interview confirmed this to some extent. He said that, that no substantive pre launch preparatory work was required because it, it's just a kick stage with, you know, some extra bling. So that's really fantastic. It, it seems like, uh, like you could, easily talk about this in sort of uh stealing the wind out of their sails kind of way and say, oh well, you know, this isn't a big deal. It's just the same vehicle. We've already seen this fly. But it I think it's actually really exciting that we've already seen this fly. This, you know, this <laughs> is just a, a next step on the evolution. And, and the first here is that we've just gotten into the category that they consider to be photon. Um, and so what's the first here is not the vehicle flying. The first is that it didn't deorbit it went into what they call photon satellite mode. And uh, Beck said, for the first time, we are a complete end-to-end service um, because now we have this vehicle on orbit, hopefully for five to six years is what they're saying. And it's this technology demonstrator where, hey, yes, we've flown this vehicle before, but look what we can do with it. And uh, there's some great photos. I don't think we've seen the best photos that they have, because uh, Beck said that it has a pretty sweet camera. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so we've seen photos of the photon uh, label and emblazoned on the side and earth below it. And, uh, it sounds like they've sent back more photos than we've seen. And, uh, hopefully we're going to get five to six years of earth photos from photon. And on top of that, Beck said that they were going to let prospective customers go play with the satellite, which I think is pretty, pretty darn neat for, a. Uh, Uh, you know, a good hands-on demo kind of thing.
0: So I don't recall exactly what what all the changes were but there actually were some changes obviously to, you know, the kickstage in order to make it Photon because if it has a five-year lifespan, and I assume that it's well, it has to have solar panels, right? and I'm assuming that the kick stage did not, so that would be one difference. And obviously, you know, the cameras and nice things like that. But um, there have been some changes made to it, so it's not as though this is a trivial thing. It is still quite significant and a big oh, yeah. accomplishment,
2: right? The way I think of it is just you know it, you add on those extra things that you need to make it a satellite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some level of control and communication and kind of you know all that stuff that is mm-hmm. needed. But otherwise, I mean, like I think to the naked eye, I don't think. I know I probably I'll speak for myself I probably wouldn't be able to tell the kickstage photon much different from the proper satellite flying photon you know what I mean it's they already had developed you know most of it
1: well right so the the satellite the this is a leo photon right so the there, there is no distinction there Dennis to to spot it's just how it's configured and to be fair going from the kick stage to this full-fledged photon, it's not that they're adding things on to make it a proper satellite. What they're doing is just adding on orbit life. The kick stage already had communications on board. It already had batteries. The only thing it didn't have was, um, solar panels and, you know, some of the other things that you need to endure for a five to six year mission. Um, Hmm. and, and I, I think that's really cool. (laughs) that mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. That this is a, this is a big step. This is a very cool thing, but it's not like it's out of the blue and, you know, it's never been done before. No, I mean, they, they've they already done a lot of this work. They're just taking these incremental steps and now we're seeing, you know, a, a long lifespan.
2: But the out of the blue part was the fact that it was uh, secretly kind of launched. They didn't tell yes, us. About yes, <laughs> absolutely.
1: No, no, I absolutely agree. And I, I think it's really cool that they continue to do this where they're like, no, we're just, we're just going to go do it. You know, like we don't, we don't need the the hype for years beforehand. We're going to get the hype afterwards when we've actually mm. done it. We don't You know, we don't need to impress anybody before we've actually impressed them.
0: So I'm still thinking about all the changes that that would have to be made or, you know, ones that the original kickstage did not have. And I'm assuming that it didn't have any ability for attitude control beyond, I mean, some basic stuff. So does this have like, you know, control moment gyroscopes and things like that? Was that something that was added or not? That's kind of what I'm wondering.
1: Yeah, that's a a great question because you're saying basic attitude control. But really what you mean is like fine precision attitude control and uh attitude control that will last beyond your your first tank of fuel because this is so interesting the the dichotomy here right is this new or is this not new and like yeah we we could already point the kick stage in the right direction i mean that's kind of the key to having a kick stage is being able to point it
2: i found a line on uh, rocket lab's website oh and also um the the satellite has right a name first light I forgot about mm-hmm. that. Oh yeah. Yeah, but uh, the the line here is uh this pathfinding mission is an initial demonstration of the new power management, thermal control, and attitude control subsystem capabilities. There By testing go. these systems for an extended period on orbit, Rocket Lab's building up flight heritage for future photon satellite missions planned to LEO the moon and Venus.
1: Okay. And and that's the key, right? It's it, it's not like you're playing Kerbal and you attach an RCS thruster and that's a big a big change. It's, mm. We we already had these capabilities. It's just making those capabilities better. Yeah, first light is really cool. I like the fact that they are keeping up with the long names. You know, it's not like it's not like it's a one word name.
2: Yeah, their naming's good. I I think of a photon, and I I don't think of it as you know it mediates the electromagnetic force. And so that's <laughs> the reason why they picked that name for their electron. You know, to take the photon into orbit. Be mm-hmm. yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, that is fun, so the future of photon is bright, oh boy, um
0: <laughs> <laughs> your words <laughs>
1: didn't mean to do that, and uh Beck said that they have a whole cadre of tech demos in development, but i don't believe that we will see any more tech demos before capstone i don't, I don't this is a this is me guessing do you, do you guys? I mean, Capstone's coming up real quick. Do you think they're going to be able to fit in another tech demo?
0: I don't know what the mass difference is, but, I mean, they could launch the same Photon right. for other missions as well. I mean, right. you could just, you know, ride, share that along with it. So
1: Well, and they have, they have CubeSats coming up. So there's Monolith, DragRacer, Strix, Circle, CESat, McNair, and Flock. So Flock is definitely uh, CubeSats. I I believe Drag Racers CubeSats as well. I'm not sure about let's see Monolith is is part of the space test program. So I think that's also going to be CubeSats. But anyway, all these could very easily have actually some of them will probably require a kick stage. So yeah, hopefully hopefully they'll have uh you know, some fun demos on those future photons. And they're not just going to be, you know, quick deorbit kick stages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Capstone will fly out of Wallops. Um, and that'll be the second flight out of Wallops for them. But while it's going to be cool to see a flight out of Wallops, hopefully this month, what I'm, I mean, I think we're all really excited about Capstone because it's going to the moon. But I wanted to point out before we... Um before we left this segment the capstone launch was sold for 9.95 million. million. Like we can go to the moon for 100 yeah, say, million. Yeah, not dollars. bad for a <laughs> lunar mission. <laughs> and um if you're going to fly um your payload on a photon like it's probably going to be about the same cost, you know, like, no, no, it it will be the same because they're already, (laughs) yeah, they are flying it on a photon. They're separating and doing their own, their own lunar orbit capture. But like, you can put something around the moon for $10 million. Like I could, you know, I couldn't get a mortgage for $10 million, but that feels so accessible. Like it's not hard to get a $10 million grant, you know, like depending on who you are.
2: Like, like, I mean, at the, you know, university and, small like you know institution level that's still yeah that's something that's eminently achievable you know what i mean
1: like
0: Mm -hmm. who'd have thought that i mean obviously it's a cubesat but still
1: and it's a it's a cubesat that costs more than the rocket that it's flying on right
0: yeah how much does that cubesat cost actually
1: yeah 13.7 million dollars is the contract that went to um, advanced space to build it and i mean granted it's a 12 unit cubesat that's going to the moon so it's going to be expensive but like that's crazy (laughs) (laughs) that a CubeSat can cost more than the rocket you're launching on, on a dedicated launch too, right? Like it's, it's fantastic. I think it's, it's one of those things where like, you know, if you ask me what my favorite food is, it's usually whatever I just ate, you know, like it has much more to do with how recently I've eaten something. And like, it's the same for space companies. You know, my favorite space company is the one that we interviewed last. So maybe I'm biased, but. It, it's so exciting to see Rocket Lab doing this and to see their, their attitude is just very democratic, I guess. Like, and it's kind of the same excitement that I had about SpaceX getting up and running. Um, and now I feel like SpaceX is too expensive because we're seeing cheaper ways of getting into space. It used to be that SpaceX was, you know, the absolute cheapest way to do anything. And it was amazing how cheap they could fly their rockets. But with this context of, of Rocket Lab, being reliable and having so many launches under their belt and being able to fly such a tiny rocket I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me excited in a way that I haven't really felt since the beginning days of SpaceX.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, they fill that niche, you know, and they, yeah. they do it very well, which is the exciting part because that, because I think that I feel the same way because they're both companies that did actually get it done. And, and at the end of the day, that's important to me because you want to see stuff fly in space. So mm-hmm. you kind of have to launch it, which is exactly why I'm so far not a big fan of Blue Origin because I just got nothing to, Watch, like they just, I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. one day, you know, but it's just no fun. But yeah, like, you know, this is a company, Rocket Lab, who actually launches stuff and is also innovating and, you know, trying to bring its, you know, booster back. And mm-hmm. yeah, they're just, they're moving and they're moving mm-hmm. fast, which is so cool.
2: Yeah, they got, they got so many missions signed up now for the 2020. 2020- For the rest of this year, next year, it's like
0: they're really doing it. They are very reliable, which is the other thing, like you had just said, Ben. uh, They've proven, I mean, they've had so far one launch failure, I guess, for an actual mission, but still, no one's perfect. I mean, that's actually a very good record. That's better Mm -hmm. than SpaceX, actually, now that I think about it. That was one of those failures
1: that couldn't reasonably have been foreseen. And in one of these articles that's linked as the source for this um, for this news item, there's actually a really fun quote from Beck where he said that 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 upper stage fail or the second stage failure was sort of like stacking 20 pieces of Swiss cheese by throwing them down on a table and having one of the holes line up all the way through the stack. It, it wasn't a Starliner failure. Where it was super easy to figure out with just a code review and you would have seen this happen, you know, getting ready to happen. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, truly something that was, I want to say it wasn't foreseeable at all, but you know, it was a number of things had to stack up in order to get there. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of failure that we like to see because it teaches us something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A starliner type failure doesn't teach us anything other than don't be bad at organization which we yeah. already knew you
0: know well i guess for rocket lab it just adds one more thing to their checklist because that's kind of what it was right it was just more like i guess not yeah. quality control but you know just making sure that uh, that particular cable is cinched down mm-hmm. correctly or whatever the problem was
2: yeah that, that was the solution that it wasn't you know any redesign or anything just a matter of yeah pre-flight checks i guess
0: All right, let's do just three short and sweets again. What's the first one, Dennis?
2: First up, SpaceX sets a new record. As a result of the Delta IV Heavy pad abort, SpaceX was able to launch two Falcon 9s from Cape Canaveral within four days of each other. This turnaround time is the fastest so far for SpaceX from a single launch center. This was the result of a series of launch date slips that resulted in a launch interval that could have been even shorter at only nine hours. A similar record of two launches in 48 hours exists, but this was set from two different space centers, one Cape Canaveral, the other Vandenberg. This pair of missions offered milestones aplenty. The Starlink booster was the 40th successful ASDS landing, and the SAOCOM launch was the first SpaceX polar launch from Kennedy.
0: And then next up, China launches a reusable spacecraft. On Friday, a Long March 2F carried an experimental spacecraft into orbit. The spacecraft spent two days on orbit before returning to its landing site in China. Modifications that were made to this mission's launch tower have led to speculation that this is a winged craft, not unlike the X-37B. Several ships were deployed to maintain tracking of the vehicle after launch, indicating a roughly 45-degree inclination. This spacecraft is an early step in China's ultimate goal for a fully reusable single-stage-to-orbit spaceplane that it hopes to have operational by 2030. So that's ambitious, and I don't it's think the that's going happen. Use. But yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: And finally, we have a Starship hop. So the full-scale Starship test article, SN6, successfully completed a second 150-meter hop this week, just one month after SN5's 150-meter hop. On a recent press conference, Musk described making a prototype as, quote, relatively easy... That building the production system so that you can build hundreds or thousands of starships is the hard part. Unquote. That emphasis is Musk's stated reason that this pair of full-size hops come a full year after the final Starhopper test. Musk also indicated that the testing schedule has only slipped a few months so far and that a 20-kilometer hop is planned within the next two months and an orbital flight within six. The first ones might not work, Musk said. This is uncharted territory. No one's ever made a fully reusable orbital rocket. Construction on the first booster prototype began this week, and we don't yet know if that will be included in the orbital flight. Wow. That is exciting. (laughs)
0: Yeah. All right, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history. We have a bunch of winners: uh, Jason Friesen, Law Loving, The Greek, Ben Hallert, Cy Kyle. and the clue was "Centenarian" in 1995. I guess that was plenty easy because I thought maybe it would be a little bit tricky, but I guess I was wrong. So
2: yeah, right. So like you're saying, right? This is you know 1995 on the seventh of the seventh of September, and it was the launch of uh, STS-69. So the explanation of the clue is basically right out the gate. This was the ninth flight of. In Dogver and the 100th NASA mission. So that's where that centenarian comes in. 100th NASA mission.
0: That was the correct spelling? I so, thought it was a- So
2: in Dogver, uh, you might know it also is a space shuttle Endeavor, but for this mission, uh, I guess it was uh, actually maybe it was the ninth flight of Endeavor. It's the ninth flight of Endeavor, the first flight of Endeavor. And so this was. Um, I'll explain what I'm meaning by that by calling it in dog birth. No, that's a couple of bolts down. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is excluding uh, the uh, X 15 flights uh, that, you know breach space but um and so uh you know it started off you know the shuttle was rolled out in july but uh hurricane aaron sent it back in uh indoors on uh, august 1st and then um it was originally going to launch on august 31st but uh due to a failed fuel cell they you know scrubbed it uh back to uh you know september 7th where it ultimately flew and so um all this this canine humor I'm dropping before is that this was you know a five-person crew uh, that uh, referred to themselves. They were also known as the Dog Crew Two, and so this is a uh, little fun bit of history that spans uh, a few different uh, shuttle missions. And so, uh, originally uh, in STS fifty-three. Uh, the crew, as well as their, you know, support and flight controllers, had adopted dog tags and nicknames. So the uh, five astronauts on this mission all had different dog names that they seemed to really genuinely be referring to each other as <laughs> during the mission, or at least during the debrief. And so uh, the commander was uh, Dave Walker, who was Red Dog. Kenneth Taco Cockrell uh, was the pilot. Uh, Cujo. And then the three mission uh, specialists were James Voss who was Dogface, James <laughs> Newman who was Pluto, and Michael Gernhardt who as the only rookie was underdog. <laughs> and so <laughs> they um you know he, he had, had a really interesting career as a uh, professional deep sea diver before Uh, becoming an astronaut but um you know as the third mission specialist and uh the new guy they made him sit by himself in the mid-deck in the fifth seat and so um yeah like i mentioned right this this these these dog names you know had a bit of a heritage and so uh gian bluford had actually given uh james voss his nickname and uh bluford was known as uh dog gone was his his (laughs) dog tag and so um you can read more about it on uh, spacepatches.nl, uh, and uh, they had this line here in the article where they're kind of describing uh, the the background of uh, the dog crew. And so here's the quote: "They are the dog crew too, and they roam the planet in the dogmobile, arguably the hottest jalopy in Houston." And so I really wanted to include that. <laughs> and and just a lot of the shuttle mission crews were kind of you know more lighthearted and laid back. You know, people kind of like joke. Around A lot of times, you know, some people wear pumpkins, right, when they're uh, 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 boarding the, you know, the shuttle. And so, but these guys seem to be a particularly uh, fun-loving group of knuckleheads. And so, uh, but it was a really uh, awesome mission. Uh, kind of had everything in the kitchen sink uh, involved. And so when you look at the mission patch... Um, it's pretty busy. Uh, it's got, you know, these spirals coming out of it. It's got a few different images of the shuttle. But the ultimate idea is that these, you know, different arms are supposed to represent that, you know, it was a very multifaceted uh, mission with a lot of different payloads. And the two spiral arms in particular were the fact that this was the first time that two free-flying satellites, uh, you know, or spacecraft were released and retrieved as part of the mission. And so uh, you also have some uh, some constellations, Canis Major and Canis Minor, because there was an astronomy uh, payload on board as well. And so really just a lot of cool stuff going on. And uh, during the launch, uh, you know, there were some pretty sweet mock waves visible as it was passing through the sound barrier. Um, seeing those kind of cones develop on the side of a shuttle with the SRB still attached is pretty pretty amazing. And so as for the payload and mission itself, kind of one of the key uh, deployments was uh, what's called the Wake Shield Facility. And so this is a really interesting uh, piece of hardware. Um, I guess, you know, it is a spacecraft, you know, I guess I'd call it that. And so, you know, it's it's, it's a little science uh, uh, mission. And so this was uh, a 3.7 meter or 12 foot diameter disc. Uh, it weighed ni- 1,935 kilograms. And this was one of the two uh, free flying pieces of the mission. And so the stainless steel disc, uh, basically, uh, this was the second time it was deployed. It was, uh, you know, deployed three times, but it was basically right. So they, you know, grab it with the the shuttle arm and then they go and uh, move it over to the one side of the shuttle to kind of let the uh, atomic oxygen in the, you know, thermosphere kind of Uh, clean the, uh, what would ultimately be the vacuum-facing side of the disc, and then they go and pull it off over to the other side of the shuttle and kind of test its attitude control and all that good stuff. And then they um, release it. And it uses its own nitrogen gas thrusters to go and maneuver behind and trail the shuttle in its orbit by 55 uh, kilometers, or 34 miles. And so because it's moving uh, much faster than the ambient, uh, typical gas molecular speed right i mean the molecules in a gas have a distribution but there's you know characteristic you know typical speeds and because it was traveling so much faster it left behind a wake that resulted in what you know they were calling kind of an ultra vacuum right so this is you know even a bigger vacuum than you typically get at you know the orbital you know 300 some kilometers you know they expected the drop from the uh it's still kind of a vacuum, right? The denser side of the disc versus the ultra vacuum. They uh, were anticipating a six order magnitude drop, but instead they got about two, uh, which isn't bad, you know, back a 100 or so. And the idea was to actually go and develop thin film semiconductors uh, through, you know, uh, basically uh, molecular deposition, um, epitaxy, uh, which is ordered deposition in particular. And um, what's really cool is that, like I said, this was the third time they deployed it. The first time was on STS-60, where they just kept it on the arm. They kind of wanted to, you know, basically test things out and see how it worked and so that worked well to kind of give them some confidence and then this uh, time the second deployment on STS-69 unfortunately there was some overheating and so uh, they had to retrieve it a little early and so they didn't quite develop anything or get you know any results from it but the third and final time that the wake uh, wake shield facility uh, flew so uh, WSF-3, uh, was on STS-80, and that one was successful. And so um, they actually had developed some films uh, in this ultra-vacuum, and so uh, I think uh, we'll plop in the show notes a, a link to the uh, scientific article that kind of uh, presented the results.
1: We actually had STS-60 as a This Week in Spaceflight History back before we were in triple-digit episodes, and so maybe we'll have to do um the third wake shield (laughs) facility at some point because you're talking about this in much greater detail than i did way back when and so maybe for when we talk about the third one we'll have to uh, bring a guest on and get some really high quality data
2: in oh that would be badass yeah i like that (laughs) (laughs) well i mean if anybody uh you know is uh around you know the Houston area, you can actually see the uh, Wake Shield facility uh, kind of parked uh, in the uh, H- University of Houston Center for Advanced Materials. Um, for hmm. obvious reasons, you can imagine why it would be there <laughs> as far as an advanced material developing something in the ultra vacuum of space.
0: <laughs> so I wonder <laughs> if this is – so you think – is is this something that like modern techniques uh, have overcome and that, you know, like you could do on Earth? Or I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if this would be perhaps, you know, a good case for – some kind of on-orbit manufacturing in this case of, you know, these semiconductors because that's what people talk about, but I don't know what the exact cases are. You know, um, I've heard about pharmaceuticals and so forth. So I had never heard of this. I don't at least remember it the last time that we had spoken about it. So this is all kind of new to me, but it looks very interesting. So you can use the vacuum of space to actually do this type of manufacturing, which cannot be done on Earth, but I suppose maybe could be if you were doing it in a super clean vacuum, but that's hard to do.
2: I So, yeah, I don't know enough and, you know, maybe uh, you have some idea this, Ben, or someone in the chat, but I'm I'm not quite sure what the cutting edge, right? So this is, you know, two decades ago. And so yeah. I don't know what the cutting edge of vacuum technology is um, and whether or not you can compare that to what they were able to develop, what they were able to achieve with this this Wake Shield facility. Yeah. But um, I don't know, I mean, 20 years, I mean, think about yeah. what the internet and, you know, technology was like in the mid-90s and then kind of. Yeah. So I, I I actually I I don't know. That's a great question. Well, and also they
1: they were mostly looking at um like semiconductor and room temperature or high temperature superconductors, right? That that was the kind of technology they were looking at, and we've made some pretty good advances, and also like limited our expectations of high temperature superconductors.
2: I think. Yeah, there's been a lot of developments in that field. For sure. I mean, yeah, they're getting so better.
0: So it's still not room temperature, but I mean that's you know not going to happen anytime too soon. But at the same time, there have been it's just been like steady progress,
1: right? Yeah, this mm-hmm. is the only instance in which high temperature is
2: a lower temperature than room temperature. Yeah, yeah. When they say high temperature superconductors, they mean not uh, not within degrees of absolute zero.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I'd be I'd be interested to know if this was still something that it would be you know at. Other challenges notwithstanding a good place to manufacture some materials.
2: My instinct and I don't know if maybe how if this was the paper on it, but I'm seeing only this has only been cited four times. Hmm. And I mean I feel like that that would be the way I think to figure it out is, you know, are yeah. people still citing this and saying that it's yeah. useful in the modern context? Yeah. And the most recent one was last year that was what looks like proceedings about material processing facilities in space and so that might have just been a purely historical note that you know we had this thing up there
1: yeah yeah i'm seeing two different articles that were written and one was cited twice and one has been cited four times so yeah uh-huh. not not super
2: encouraging well still cool that we did it right. <laughs> and so um you know there were plans for a a fourth uh, deployment but this time a new uh, physical, you know, facility in uh, 1998 uh, that would have more solar panels for improved power generation, but uh, that was ultimately canceled. And so that's the, uh, the end of our trailing uh, disk missions that we toss up into LEO. So that was the first of the two kind of uh, major payloads, although, again, there were quite a few payloads on this mission. But the other um, uh, free-flying satellite, in this case, uh, basically a space telescope, was uh, the Spartan uh 2013. So this was the third flight of the Spartan 201, which actually comes from a bit of a heritage of these uh uh ultimately they're, you know, they're their space telescopes. Uh, they they all had imagers and were used to study either helios uh physics, right, study the sun and um you know, it's its solar wind uh, or uh to basically, you know, Uh, look elsewhere. And so the first one was a Spartan A, a proof of concept. Uh, The second one was Spartan Haley that was uh, intended to be a UV imager, uh, UV telescope to basically study, you know, Haley's comet, but uh, uh, unfortunately was uh, lost uh, in the Challenger uh, accident. And then uh, Spartan 201, uh, which flew five times, had its first two launches to study the sun. Uh, It had uh, UV invisible telescopes on both it looks like they added, as far as I can tell, a uh, an X-ray telescope uh, to SPARTAN-2013. Uh, and so this was a, um, you know, while the disk, right, the wake shield facility was, you know, trailing in Dogver or Endeavour uh, in its orbit, uh, SPARTAN-201 uh, was flying ahead of it. And, um, you know, it was doing its thing you know after they deployed it, uh, but it shut down a little early, uh, though it got 95% of the science uh, they intended uh, done. And so, get some good stuff once you can get above the Earth's atmosphere and start using, you know, X-ray and UV uh, images uh, to study things. And then um, after that, it was deployed uh, another two times. Uh, on its fourth deployment, a computer glitch meant it couldn't control its spin, and so they just kind of retrieved it by a spacewalk. Uh, and then its fifth and final deployment. Uh, they used that data to recalibrate to recalibrate SOHO, which is you know an absolute workhorse as far as uh, solar observatories in orbit go. And um, and then finally there was a Spartan two 20- oh. Four, which was a far UV uh, space telescope that was uh, that observed galactic dust clouds in particular. So, not heliophysics that time. And so these were pretty cool looking, you know, instrument or satellites that you know you basically had in your shuttle bay. You grabbed it, you tossed it out there, you let it do its thing, and then you went and scooped it up for even more astronomy. There was a uh, another uh, space telescope on there. Um, this one was not a free flyer, but it was the International Extreme UV hitchhiker. And uh this uh type of satellite flew a few times. This was the first one of its five planned flights. And um in particular, right, again you could study the sun with this uh in the extreme UV, since so this is gonna be you know shorter wavelength higher energy UV. Uh but also um Jupiter and Io have a really uh interesting magnetic interaction, right? This you know, Jupiter's magnetic field, or its magnetosphere, is gigantic. And it interacts with uh, Io in a way that you can actually see kind of like hot spots popping up on Jupiter coming from uh, uh, basically a trail of ionized particles leading from the planet to the moon. And so, um, actually I think the, the the direction's the opposite, but in any event, <laughs> uh, it's it's a really cool uh, thing as far as you know planetary science goes. And so this was you know you know an an extreme UV uh, telescope, and it worked uh, very well. And then uh, there were uh, a few more smaller payloads. Um, I didn't want to go through every single one just for the sake of time, but one of them uh, was related to uh, demonstrating a a cooling system planned for the Earth Observing System program. And so this one is quite a mouthful. It's called the Capillary Pumped Loop Two Slash. Bridge assembly, or much easier to remember, the CAPL2GBA which I guess makes me think of Game Boy Advance, so I actually could remember the second half of that. But (laughs) yeah, and so this one was, you know, uh, is a demonstration of technology kind of uh, experiment that also included a uh, sub-experiment called the Thermal Energy Storage, or uh, TES-2. And this was uh, basically checking out the heat capacity of some lithium fluoride and calcium fluoride salts. In addition, there were the uh, getaway specials, um, or the getaway, I guess, you know, Yeah, I mean, I'm going to call it getaway specials because these are these, you know, cans that carry small experiments that kind of, you know, open it up to, like, interested uh, institutions and individuals outside of NASA that want to basically get, you know, ride share on the the shuttle. And so, um, in this case, it was a lot of, uh, um, again, more practical demonstrations. And so, uh, it was you know these experiments were investigating how different facets of the shuttle systems like its attitude control would affect the space environment as well as the vehicle structure itself and so um that's what the uh, getaway special cans were checking out uh, there was also epics the electrolysis performance improvement concept study so this is right when you know there's no space station yet but there's going to be and so this was kind of, you know, a, a demonstrator as far as producing oxygen uh, via electrolysis. Uh and so kind of was intended to support uh, ultimately, you know, the what would be the international space station. There were a bunch of biology experiments including uh one fun one where astronauts would basically strap themselves into a little harness and get pulled into the wall or like towards a wall and so uh... since three of the five were uh... former military folks and i think maybe one or two of them were uh, navy people and so um... The mission commander, uh, uh, Dave Walker, old red dog, was joking about how, uh, you know, it felt like a cat shot or catapult shot that some of these Navy guys had uh, experienced before. Mm-hmm. So they got to uh, relive their, uh, their, those halcyon days back on a, you know, a carrier <laughs> getting accelerated around.
0: <laughs> I wonder what the point of that was. I mean,
2: yeah, I, 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 I don't know. It, it, um, I, I heard it described as basically kind of measuring linear acceleration, but like why? I don't know. I don't know if it was more biological than engineering. I mean, it seemed pretty, just watching the brief little clip I saw of it, it seemed pretty um, primitive. I I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, it wasn't a very, it didn't look very sophisticated.
1: Yeah. Rudimentary. So I'm not sure. let's, rudimentary. Let's go with thank rudimentary. You.
2: <laughs> yeah, primitive was not the word. Rudimentary, uh, yeah. <laughs> Something I think, uh, you know, uh, an engineering club could easily uh, build. <laughs> Although a lot of engineering clubs actually build amazing things so (laughs) (laughs) so i had to look this up so um the
1: capillary pumped Mm -hmm. loop to slash gas bridge assembly it's not capital g lowercase a s it's actually capital gas um so the gba is the gas bridge assembly gas is actually another acronym for getaway special. (laughs)
2: I see. So So the getaway special is, I see.
1: Okay. Yeah. So this, this, uh, the capillary pump loop is the experiment. And then it also has the bridge assembly for the getaway specials, but GBA is a nested initialism and it's so NASA and so space. And it's so annoying at the same
2: time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's nested. It has dashes in there. It has Mm -hmm. letters (laughs) and numbers, um, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thanks Ben. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so after all those payloads, right? And there there were other ones too that, you know, I just haven't uh mentioned uh to uh, smaller ones. But um, you know, including a, a what basically looked like a hand cranked uh centrifuge sort of thing. But uh uh the other kind of big mission highlight was a spacewalk on uh day 9. And so this was uh again, this is right pre, you know, station. And so this was testing techniques and suit designs um that, you know, we're going to hopefully, you know, well, that would end up being useful for when, you know, we were constructing the space station and, you know, just doing work up there. And so it was a six hour and 48 minute uh, spacewalk with Voss and uh, Gernhart. That is to say, dog face and underdog. And so the rookie uh, got to go on the, uh, the spacewalk and um, or didn't get to go on it. The rookie did the spacewalk. Uh, one of the uh, highlights uh, for them, they said, was uh, as part of the uh, uh, spacewalk was to basically just test, um, you know, the thermal uh influence of kind of just sitting up there in space and so they got to hang on the arm for 45 minutes and just really do nothing but observe and so that was a really nice uh, way to do science when you get to just enjoy yourself right i mean they weren't really doing anything else at the at the time and so to give you the idea of the kind of jokes they um were laughing afterwards during the debriefing about how red dog was saying how he could uh You know, shake the arm, and uh, basically, you know, you shake, you shook it enough. You could go and toss them off, and he did that a few times, but they didn't really. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, after uh, ten days and twenty hours, it land the, you know, and dogver landed safely in uh, Kennedy, and uh, that was the end of uh, STS-69, the hundredth NASA mission, not including the x Exloits.
0: Cool. So, do you have a clue for next week?
2: Next week in 1908. Setting Orion up for a fatal misidentification.
0: Setting Orion up for a fatal misidentification next week in 1908. If you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Alright, so let's move on to a quick upcoming spaceflight event. Just one launch, but it's a pretty cool one.
1: Yeah, it's one we've been looking forward to for a while. So it's Astra's Rocket 3.1. Now this is um, a test flight with no payload, uh, or at least they say there's no payload. I'm sure that there's going to be a you know a, a mass simulator but you know who knows maybe they'll put some cheese on there and this has been uh delayed and delayed and delayed um mostly due to to weather violations, but hopefully they're going to be able to do it this time. And um, you know, we wish them the best of luck. It'd be really cool to see them push all the way to orbit this time. So that's okay. flying on September tenth or eleventh, depending on what time zone you're in. Uh, it is o two hundred hours to 0430 hours uh, universal, and that's the eleventh. And then if you are in the U.S., uh, it's like ten p.m. to midnight to twelve thirty a.m. Uh, Eastern time on mostly the 10th, but partially uh-huh. the 11th. Um, and of course, that's uh, flying out of Kodiak, which is, um, it's going to be really cool to see another orbital launch facility. Uh, come online, mm. the Pacific Spaceport Complex.
0: Alrighty, well, that is your one upcoming spaceflight event. Cool. Okay, and with that, time to deal with the show, so we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate link
0: and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our
2: Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're orbital podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. (laughs) See you.